day, and welcome to the Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting exclusively here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. Our first subject is hospitals during the pandemic, during America's race to zero emissions. This is an article out of The Guardian. It says, Lois Wessel used to work as a labor and delivery nurse in community clinics in Maryland. She remembers that every time a baby was born, she would see a beautiful little creature. And then she'd see a whole big bag full of garbage, sheets, supplies, packaging, and tubing. Shanda Demarest, also a nurse, used to work on the cardiac unit of a hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She said when many of her patients were at the end of their lives, caring for them took an astronomical and perplexing amount of resources. In birth, in sickness, and in death, hospitals produce gigantic amounts of waste, much of which can be avoided. In the U.S., the healthcare sector makes up 10% of the country's greenhouse gas emissions, according to a study in the National Library of Medicine. The global healthcare climate footprint is equivalent to the greenhouse gas emissions from 514 coal fired power plants, according to a report by. Healthcare Without Harm, a global organization that advocates for ecologically sustainable healthcare practices. According to the organization, if the world's health services were a country, it would be the fifth largest carbon emitter on the planet. For regular listeners of the Climate Report, you know that recently we just talked about food waste and how food waste contributes to the climate and environmental problems. And how across the planet, if you added up all of the food waste and treated it like a country, it would be the third largest emitter behind the U.S. and China. So according to this organization, if the world's health services were a country, it would be the fifth largest carbon emitter on the planet. Well now, Wessel and Demarest are a small but growing number of healthcare workers who are improving their and their hospitals' environmental footprints through sustainable practices on both small and large scales. But the pandemic, currently the main concern for the healthcare system, has brought new challenges for climate action. Hospitals and clinics are among the top consumers of single-use plastics in the country. Medical waste is often non-recyclable, and a lot of it is incinerated, releasing toxic fumes and ashes that are hazardous to public health and the environment. Usually, nurses or assistants open up all the equipment a doctor might need for a procedure. Gloves, swabs, bandages, etc. Often, some of these materials are not used, and 
have to be thrown out because they are no longer sterile. But small daily steps can make a difference. For Wessel, that means ditching the habit of having materials opened before the clinician performs a procedure. Wessel said, we're not learning, we're learning to not open everything disposable until we know that we really need it. This might sound like a small step, but it is done several times a day, every day, in hospitals and clinics all over the world. Well, other health systems have applied these strategies on a larger countrywide scale. Staff in the United Kingdom's National Health Services Sustainable Development Unit also have worked with medical suppliers to design medical equipment packs instead of individually wrapped products, and they've been doing this since 2015. This reduced packaging waste by 90%, 2.6 tons a year, according to an article published in the Nursing Times. Well, in 2015, Carillion Clinics in Virginia also formally introduced a sustainability program to reduce its environmental footprint through multiple interventions. It saved about 30,000 pounds of waste and $50,000 every year from just a little tweak. Asking patients before sending them food they didn't want to their rooms. That's according to Sarah Wolford, the manager of the Efficiency and Sustainability Program at the Carillion Clinics. That's no small feat. It is estimated that the food and catering services in the UK's National Health Service produce approximately 6% of the health service's total emissions every year. A study of three hospitals in Italy in 2019 revealed that 42% of food that patients received in their rooms was thrown away. Carillion Clinic also started to purchase reprocessed products, medical equipment that is sterilized for reuse, saving $125,000 in 2019 alone, said Wolford. While controlling affection in a hospital setting is paramount, equipment such as washable gowns, blood pressure pumps, or pulse oximeters, which measure oxygen levels, can be reused if processed correctly, saving hospitals from tossing out tons of waste. But reducing waste isn't the only hurdle, especially if disposing of the waste that you do have can be just as damaging to the environment. Generally, in medical settings, there are two garbage cans, medical waste that needs to be incinerated, and regular waste. Where Wessel works, the medical waste bin is red. Because misplacing non-infectious materials like papers or gloves in the red bin will unnecessarily increase the amount of garbage to be incinerated, thus increasing the toxic emissions of that process. And 
seeing all of this waste firsthand has turned individual medical practitioners not only into advocates, but in some cases, into consultants. When she worked as a cardiac nurse in a big hospital in Minneapolis, Demarest saw the huge amounts of waste that went into the dailies of her job. Having grown up in nature in a rural Minnesota, she had a deep attachment to the environment and always sought sustainable practices. Well, in the summer of 2020, she left her bedside work. Now, she coaches healthcare workers on sustainable solutions, from where to purchase equipment to investigating products, through her own business, Practice Green Health. Said Demarest, sustainability can save hospitals millions and millions of dollars in energy reduction. Well, healthcare without harm also has similar helpful guides, plus presentations and tips on how nurses can talk to hospital administrations about eco-friendly practices. They highlight how interdisciplinary collaboration can help overcome bureaucratic hurdles. Nancy Cheney is a retired nurse who has a degree in environmental sciences and a decade of experience in policy. She said, part of the lag in sustainability practices in healthcare is due to economics and politics. Ultimately, though, she thinks there will be an implementation of all of these practices out of necessity, but also because a lot of these solutions are actually cost-effective. Cheney said, We're seeing the larger hospitals in our bigger cities take more decisive action because they magnify the cost savings. It makes sense for their bottom line, as well as for the environment and the people they serve. Well, in light of the pandemic, concern over the sustainability of healthcare practices has been put aside. Namely, because of the need for continuous ventilation, greater hospitalization capacity, and more disposable equipment and gowns. However, the pandemic has also brought some positive changes, advocates say. A shortage of protective equipment in the healthcare system pushed hospitals to be more stringent with its use, proving that they can and should internally regulate the use of their equipment. Appointments have now moved online, reducing commutes and the emissions associated with them. And most importantly, according to Demarest, the pandemic created a collective sense of action. At the Carillion Clinic, Wolford said she is seeing more willingness to engage in sustainability practices. The article ends by saying, in the midst of an exhausting battle with the pandemic, small, impactful practices give healthcare workers something positive to focus on. Wolford at the Carilion Clinic said they want something that they feel good about. Well, in our next focus, some new research that's focusing on the impacts to marine life 
of a globally heating planet. The headline says marine species increasingly can't live at the equator due to global warming. A new study suggests it is already too warm in the tropics for some species to survive. Well, global warming has made the ocean around the equator less rich in wildlife, with conditions likely already too hot for some species to survive, according to a new study. Analysis of the changing locations of almost 50,000 marine species between 1955 and 2015 found a predicted impact of global warming. Species moving away from the equator and it can now be observed at a global scale. The new study said, further global warming, which is now unavoidable, would cut the richness of species in the ocean and tropical regions even further. Scientists said the consequences of this shift could be profound and would be challenging to predict. Species attached to the ocean floor had not declined. But the diversity of free-swimming species, such as fish, had dropped significantly between 1965 and 2010, said Professor David Showman, a co-author of the study. Showman of the University of the Sunshine Coast, said the drop in the richness of species would likely affect communities that relied on the ocean for food in areas where the fish they used to find were no longer there. He said, these species haven't disappeared. They've just gone from the tropics. He continued, there's not only a gradual warming happening worldwide, but also superimposed on top of that, are marine heat waves that are becoming more frequent and more severe. They are partly responsible for the rapid movement of tropical species. That's right, we here as humans that live on the surface of the planet, we're used to thinking of heat waves as hot air. We can predict when there's going to be a heat wave and people should stay inside and air quality is dangerous and blackouts are at risk and take care of the sick and the young and the elderly. It turns out there are also heat waves in the ocean and they are becoming more frequent and more severe. He said economies that relied on tourists visiting places for their unique biodiversity could also be affected. Well, the research analyzed some 7 million pieces of data covering just under 50,000 separate species of life, from large marine mammals such as whales to jellyfish and corals, and the database starts in 1955. Free-swimming species declined at the equator as temperatures rose, and this band around the equator where species richness was declining is also widening. 
It's heading even further north towards the poles and south towards the pole. It's becoming a wider band around the equator. This research, published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, said ocean warming is thus causing large-scale changes in the global latitudinal distribution of marine biodiversity. Despite less warming in the ocean than what's occurring on land, marine species are shifting their distributions as fast or faster in response to this warming than those on land. So what they're saying, of course, is that there's a great migration away from the equator and that it's happening in a faster response time than what we're doing on land. And as you might expect, it's partially because there's just less friction in the water when you're moving and trying to flee. For us ground-based life forms, it's a bit slower process. They say here that scientists from the University of the Sunshine Coast, the University of Auckland, University of Queensland, and Australia's science agency, the CSIRO, all collaborated for the research. And while the study did not try to assess if all this warming was causing extinctions, Showman said this did not mean extinctions were not happening. There was certainly a risk of extirpation, where even common species could be pushed into cooler areas. The study said that all of this data suggests that it is already too warm at the equator for some species to survive. Well, the ocean has absorbed about 90% of global warming since the 1970s. The ocean has absorbed 90% of the global warming that's occurred since the 1970s, caused mainly by burning fossil fuels and deforestation. Showman said that the rate of warming was quite intense and is becoming more intense and would continue for decades, even with ambitious cuts to greenhouse gas emissions. He said, we really need to be acting now. Climate change is with us. And we are already seeing massive scale rearrangements of biodiversity that underpins all of human life. He said, I'm nervous about where this ends. Well, last year, scientists warned that ocean heating could radically reorganize marine food webs around the world, causing species numbers to collapse and giving an advantage to species like algae. Professor Ove Hoguldberg, a marine biologist at the University of Queensland and an expert on how climate change is impacting oceans, said it had long been hypothesized that as equatorial waters got warmer, species would start to move out. He said these species are the only ones that can tolerate the warm waters in the ocean. And so... If it gets too warm for them, there are no species to take their place. You then lose that richness of species. 
Hoag Goldberg, who was not involved in the study, also said warming ocean waters would set off a series of unintended consequences that would be hard to predict. For example, if prey species didn't move at the same rate as their predators to new areas, this could create a disconnect. As some species moved into new territories, you would see a mix of species that were never seen before, creating more uncertainty for ecosystems and the people who relied on them. Dr. Jody Rummer, an associate professor at the ARC Center of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University, said the findings of the latest research were important and sobering. She said tropical species had evolved in relatively stable temperatures. Of new temperatures was limited. As the preferred temperature range of species started to shift, she said there were only three outcomes. Species could adapt, move, or die. And scientists were busy trying to understand how these three options would play out across different species. Rumner said the ocean was not only heating, but also being affected by acidification and deoxygenation. Dr. Rumner said, quote, there is a concentration of developing countries in the equatorial zone where fish are crucial to the livelihoods and survival of millions of people. Climate change may lead to redistribution of global fish catch potential, with the most significant declines likely to occur near the equator. Understanding the effects of ocean heating would be crucial for the future of the world's fisheries, as well as for conservation strategies to protect marine ecosystems. Well, in our final piece for the Climate Report, this is the latest news on the monthly measurements for the carbon content in the atmosphere of our planet. And we have just set a new record. Last month in March, we've collected the data, and it says carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have reached a record high. Matter of fact, they are 50% higher than what they were during pre-industrial levels, which is from 1850 to 1900. This is an article also in The Guardian. It says, concentrations of climate warming carbon dioxide in the atmosphere have hit record highs despite a dip in emissions during the COVID pandemic, scientists have said. The latest measurements from the long-running recording station at Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii show that global levels of carbon dioxide are 50% higher what they were when the Industrial Revolution began in the mid-1800s in Britain. The data released by the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego, shows that atmospheric concentrations of the greenhouse gas in March averaged 417.14 parts per million 
a new record high, 417.14. Some of you Climate Report listeners may remember that there was a big push with an early climate change organization. They were called 360.org. And they wanted to, uh, this was one of the groups uh, founded by Bill McKibben. And uh, it might even be 350.org. Either way, they settled on that number saying we should not go past this or we will begin feeling the effects of climate change. So we just set a new record of 417.14, and we are definitely seeing the effects of climate change. The old record was 417.1. So we just eked it out. They said that The peak for this year, in 2021, is expected to be at 419.5. The previous record for monthly carbon dioxide concentrations for our planet, recorded at the Mauna Loa Observatory, was last set in May of 2020. May of 2020 was when it was 417.1. March of this year, 417.14. Well, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere fluctuate slightly throughout the year, dropping normally in the spring and summer, as some carbon dioxide is absorbed during those seasons by plants growing in the northern hemisphere before carbon dioxide levels globally rise again in autumn and winter. But the long-term trend in rising concentrations of carbon dioxide is caused by human activity, mainly through the burning of fossil fuels and also from deforestation. Global emissions reduced temporarily in 2020 as a result of a drop in transportation use and economic activity as the coronavirus pandemic struck. But the emissions reduction in 2020 was not enough to substantially affect the ongoing buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which continues to rise. Much larger, longer-term reductions in emissions will be required to either slow or stop the rise. Projections from the UN's climate science body, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has warned that to halt global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius, beyond which the worst impacts of rising temperatures are expected, 1.5 degrees Celsius. As a side note, we're already at 1.25. We're expected to blow right through 1.5 sometime this decade. But the IPCC has warned that to halt global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius, global emissions will need to reach net zero by around 2050, if not sooner. And reaching net zero involves cutting emissions to as near to zero as possible, and then taking steps such as planting trees to absorb any remaining pollution. Well, commenting on the latest data, Professor Martin Siegert of the Grantham Institute at the Imperial College of London said the new record high was completely expected. He said emissions may have been reduced through COVID last year, but we are still emitting lots of carbon dioxide, and so its atmospheric concentration is bound to go up and will continue to do so until we get to somewhere near net zero emissions. He continued, our path to net zero 
is obvious, challenging, and necessary, and we must get on with the transition urgently. Professor Simon Lewis from the University College of London said, it is easy to forget just how much and just how fast fossil fuel emissions are affecting our planet. It took over 200 years to increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by just 25%, two centuries to get there. But just another 30 years to double that and reach 50% above pre-industrial levels. This dramatic change is like a human meteorite hitting Earth. But he added, if countries make plans now to put society on a path of sustained and dramatic cuts to emissions from today, we can avoid ever-rising emissions, and the dangerously accelerating impacts of climate change. Well, that's all for today's Climate Report, broadcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For more news and views in between broadcasts and post-show links to today's news, you can find the Climate Report page on Facebook, and feel free to also email climatereport at kvmr.org.